You're entering Outer Brightness. Hey, Fireflies. This is the second part of a multi-part episode on the LDS Church's Gospel Topics essay titled Becoming Like God. If you haven't listened to part one, you may wish to go back and do so. In this part, we're bringing you the next two parts of the essay. How have ideas about divinity shifted over Christian history? And how were ideas about deification introduced to Latter-day Saints? Uh, Sorry, I scrolled down too far. Okay. So I am at uh, how have ideas about divinity shifted over Christian history? Latter-day Saint beliefs would have sounded more familiar to the earliest generations of Christians than they do to many modern Christians. Many church fathers, influential theologians, and teachers in early Christianity spoke approvingly of the idea that humans can become divine. One modern scholar refers to the ubiquity of the doctrine of deification, the teaching that humans could become God in the first centuries after Christ's birth. The church father Irenaeus, who died about AD 202, asserted that Jesus Christ did, through his transcendent love, become what we are that he might bring us to be what he is himself. Clement of Alexandria, circa AD 150 to 215, wrote that, quote, the word of God became man, that thou mayest learn from man how man may become God, close quote. Basil the Great uh, also celebrated this prospect, not just, quote, being made like to God, close quote, but, quote, highest of all, the being made God, close quote. What exactly the early church fathers meant when they spoke of becoming God is open to interpretation, but it is clear that references to deification became more contested in the late Roman period and were infrequent by the medieval era. The first known objection by a church father to teaching deification came in the 5th century. By the 6th century, teachings on becoming God appear more limited in scope, as in the definition provided by Pseudo Dionysius the Areopagite. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Deification, unquote, deification is the attaining of likeness to God and union with him so far as is possible, close quote. Why do these beliefs fade from prominence? Changing perspectives on the creation of the world may have contributed to the gradual shift toward more limited views of human potential. The earliest Jewish and Christian communities on the creation assumed that God had organized the world out of pre-existing materials, emphasizing the goodness of God in shaping such a life-sustaining order. But the incursion of new philosophical ideas in the second century led to the development of a doctrine that God created the universe ex nihilo, out of nothing. This ultimately became the dominant teaching about the creation within the Christian world. In order to emphasize God's power, many theologians reasoned that nothing could have existed for as long as he had. It became important in Christian circles to assert that God had originally been completely alone. Creation, uh, creation ex nihilo widened the perceived gulf between God and humans. It became less common to teach either that human souls had existed before the world or that they could inherit and develop the attributes of God in their entirety in the future. Gradually, as the depravity of humankind and the immense distance, sorry, the immense distance between creator and creature were increasingly emphasized, the concept of deification faded from Western Christianity, though it remained a central tenet of Eastern Orthodoxy, one of the three major branches of Christianity. All right. General thoughts on this section, Matthew? 
uh, there's there's like a lot of references there that I want to read in depth because they make a lot of claims. That's <laughs> <laughs> it makes a lot of claims. It's like the entirety of the early church talked about God creating everything from materials, not from nothing. And then there's a reference there. And I'm like, hmm, okay, I, well, I want to read that reference because uh, that's a pretty bold statement there. Well, I can tell you what that reference is. Yeah. Right. That. Uh, let's see. What's the footnote on that one? Uh, one second. Um, okay. Hold on. Uh, 19. Where it talks about how creation ex nihilo became yep. ultimately the dominant teaching. Yep. So the footnote is for information on the second century context that gave birth to creation ex nihilo. See Gerhard May, Creatio ex, Creatio ex nihilo, the doctrine of creation out of nothing in early Christian thought published in 2004. Uh, so um, that is the book that Latter-day Saints will often reference. Um, it is, that that footnote here being in here makes me wonder if if Blake Osler wasn't involved in in writing this uh, because he references in his uh, various articles that he has written uh, on creation ex nihilo uh, that book uh, extensively uh, he critiques uh, William Lane Craig and Paul Copan's uh, chapter in. Uh, the New Mormon Challenge on Creation Ex Nihilo uh, by reference to that book. Um, it's a single book. Um, it's it's $94, I think, on Amazon. <laughs> so I'm not going to buy it. You can read a good chunk of it uh, on Amazon, you know, by looking inside that link that they have there on Amazon. Um, but uh, I linked to uh, a uh, book review of it by Paul Copan, who is a Christian philosopher um, in our uh, episode notes for our creation ex nihilo uh, part one. So if listeners want to check that out, uh, you can see what Paul Copan has to say uh, in response to Gerhard May. Uh, I think it's a good read, Um, but you're right. There's a lot of references here to uh, church fathers um, and what they may or may not have taught. Um, I think the, uh, (laughs) the kind of um, uh, equivocation that's provided at the beginning of of one of the paragraphs uh, when they say what exactly the early church fathers meant when they spoke of becoming God is open to interpretation. Um, I I would argue that it's not really if you read the church fathers. Um, So for example, they cite uh, Basil the great um, and say that he also celebrated this prospect prospect not just, quote, being made like to God, but highest of all, being made God, okay? Um, the, the equivocation that I see in, in, in that statement, what exactly the early church fathers meant when they spoke of becoming God is open to interpretation. It, it's problematic um, because what they, what they would like to do, it seems, is slide in there the preexistence of souls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is something that the church fathers outside of origin um, expressly deny, um, so I thought it would be interesting to quote from Basil the Great. I have a little bit of a lengthy quote uh, from him, uh, but I hope it will be instructive. Um, I'm quoting Basil the Great from his homily two, uh, and it's in uh, the complete Antonicene, Nicene, and post-Nicene Church Fathers collection, which I have on Kindle. Um, and he's commenting here on the... Uh, phrase in uh, Genesis 1-2 that the earth was invisible and unfinished or the earth was formless and void uh, as translated in the um, the KJV. Um, 
So I'll just go ahead and read what he has to say. It's going to be a little bit lengthy, but um, I think it'll be instructive to what as to what the author of this essay has done in trying to present Basil as somebody who is uh, an early proponent of uh, theology that was the same as, as that of the Latter-day Saints, where he's not. All right, so Basil the Great says, In the few words which have occupied us this morning, we have found such a depth of thought that we despair of penetrating further. If such is the forecourt of the sanctuary, if the portico of the temple is so grand and magnificent, if the splendor of its beauty thus dazzles the eyes of the soul, what will be the holy of holies? Who will dare to try to gain access to the innermost shrine? Who will look into its secrets? To gaze into it is indeed forbidden us. The language is powerless to express what the mind conceives. However, since there are rewards and most desirable ones reserved by the just judge for the intention alone of doing good, do not let us hesitate to continue our researches. Although we may not attain to the truth, if with the help of the Spirit we do not fall away from the meaning of Holy Scripture, we shall not deserve to be rejected. And with the help of grace, we shall contribute to the edification of the Church of God. The earth, says Holy Scripture, was invisible and unfinished. The heavens and the earth were created without distinction. How then is it that the heavens are perfect whilst the earth is still unformed and incomplete? In one word, what was the unfinished condition of the earth? And for what reason was it invisible? The fertility of the earth is its perfect finishing. Growth of all kinds of plants, the upspringing of tall trees, both productive and sterile flowers, sweet scents and fair colors, and all that which is which a little later at the voice of God came forth from the earth to beautify her, their universal mother. As nothing of all this yet existed, scripture is right in calling the earth without form. We could also say of the heavens that they were still imperfect and had not received their natural adornment, since at that time they did not shine with the glory of the sun and of the moon and were not crowned by the choirs of the stars. These bodies were not yet created. Thus, you will not diverge from the truth in saying that the heaven also, heavens also were without form. The earth was invisible for two reasons. It may be because man, the spectator, did not yet exist, or because being submerged under the waters which overflowed the surface, it could not be seen, since the waters had not yet been gathered together into their own places where God afterwards collected them, and gave them the name of seas. What is invisible? First of all, that which our fleshly eye cannot perceive. Our mind, for example, then that which visible in its nature is hidden by some body which conceals it, like iron in the depths of the earth. It is in this sense because it was hidden under the waters that the earth was still invisible. However, as light did not yet exist, and as the earth lay in darkness because of the obscurity of the air above it, it should not astonish us that for this reason scripture calls it invisible. He goes on to say, But the corruptors of truth... And the editors of the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture series uh, suggest that here Basil is talking about uh, the, let me just grab that real quick. They suggest that Basil is here talking about the Manichaeans, um, but the corruptors of truth who, incapable of submitting their reason to Holy Scripture, distort at will the meaning of the Holy Scriptures, pretend that these words mean matter, for it is matter, they say, which from its nature is without form and invisible, being by the conditions of its, of its existence without quality and without form and figure, the artificer submitting it to the working of his wisdom clothed it with a form, organized it, and thus gave being to the visible world. If matter is uncreated, it has a claim to the same honors as God, since it must be of equal rank with him. And that's the, I'm going to stop the quote here. That's the exact uh, charge that, that 
we're making, Matthew, about LDS teachings about intelligences, right? So I'll quote again that, that part from Basil the Great. If matter is uncreated, it has a claim to the same honors as God, since it must be of equal rank with him. Is this not the, the summit of wickedness, that an extreme deformity without quality, without form, shape, ugliness, without configuration, to use their own expression, would should enjoy the same prerogatives with him who is wisdom, power, and beauty itself, the creator and demiurge of the universe. This is not all. If matter is so great as to be capable of, capable of being acted on by the whole wisdom of God, it would in a way raise its hypostasis to an equality with the inaccessible power of God, since it would not be able to measure by itself all the extent of the divine, all the extent of the divine intelligence. If it is insufficient for the operations of God, then we will fall into a more absurd blasphemy, since we condemn God for not being able, on account of the want of matter, to finish his own works. The poverty of human nature has deceived these reasoners. Each of our crafts is exercised upon some special matter, the art of the smith upon iron, that of the carpenter on wood. In all, there is the subject, the form, and the work which results from the form. Matter is taken from without, art gives the form, and the work is composed at the same time of form and of matter. Such is the idea that they make for themselves of the divine work. The form of the world is due to the wisdom of the supreme artificer. Matter came to create to the creator from without, and thus the world results from a double origin. It has received from outside its matter and its essence, and from God its form and figure. They thus come to deny that the mighty God has presided at the formation of the universe, and pretend that he has only brought a crowning contribution to a common work, that he has only contributed some small portion to the genesis of beings." They are incapable from the debasement of their reasonings of raising their glances to the height of truth. Here below, arts are subsequent to matter, introduced into life by the indispensable need of them. Wool existed before weaving made it, made it supply one of nature's imperfections. Wood existed before carpentering took possession of it and transformed it each day to supply new wants and made us see all the advantages derived therefrom giving the oar to the sailor, the winnowing fan to the laborer, the lance to the soldier. But God, before all those things which now attract our notice existed, after casting about him in his mind and determining to bring into being time, which had no being, imagined the world such as it ought to be and created matter in harmony with the form which he wished to give it. He assigned to the heavens the nature adapted for the heavens and gave to the earth an essence in accordance with its form. He formed as he wished fire, air, and water, and gave each the essence which the object of its existence required. Finally, he welded all the diverse parts of the universe by links of indissoluble attachment and established between them so perfect a fellowship and harmony that the most distant, in spite of their distance, appeared united in one universal sympathy. Let those men therefore renounce their fabulous imaginations who, in spite of the weakness of their argument, pretend to measure a power as incomprehensible to man's reason as is unutterable by man's voice." God created the heavens and the earth, but not only half. He created all the heavens and all the earth, creating the essence with the form. He is not an inventor of figures, but the creator even of the essence of beings. Further, let them tell us how the efficient power of God could deal with the pas passive nature of matter, the latter furnishing the matter without form, the former possessing the science of the form without matter, both being in need of each other, the creator in order to display his art, matter in order to cease to be without form and to receive a form. So just wanted to read that. I know it's long. Um, I hope that 
the point of it was clear um, because the essay here quotes Basil the Great as someone who was uh, early presenting a doctrine similar to what uh, the Latter-day Saints believe about the nature of uh, humanity. And yet here in this passage where Basil is commenting on Genesis uh, chapter one, verse two, he makes it very clear in contrast to those he, he is critiquing. He does not believe that beings and matter existed co-eternal, co-equal with God as Joseph Smith taught. Um, any thoughts on on that quote, Matthew, or, or, or what I've shared here? Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. It's as I was, as you're reading it, it really, it drives home the message that we were saying earlier that you can't take a quote or even a belief, even if you understand properly what they're saying in that context, you can't take a singular belief in someone's theology and extract it out of the context of the rest of their theology. And so in this, in this section of the gospel topics essay, they make the assertion that uh, as people changed from this, uh, this idea that God created the universe out of material to this change to believe in that God created it out of nothing. That's when that's also when theosis was, you know, it was not emphasized or it was ceased to be taught. And so they're, and they're making this connection that these two are like linked basically, um, which may be the case. So, but the fact is, is that we know from early church fathers that there, there was debate as to like, you know, creation and even the age of the earth, you know, some people kind of had more of a, you know, a longer earth kind of view. So there were, you know, these things weren't like set in stone. Um, but to say, oh yeah, he said that we could become God. So that means, you know, basically the early church taught the Mormon, the LDS view of, you know, theosis, and it's just been phased out over time. You know, that's, that's like a gross, you know, abuse of kind of the entire belief system of the early church. And so we really have to be careful. And, and I, I, I'll be frank and say that a lot of Christians do that kind of thing too, where, you know, Baptists will pull a quote out of, you know, from an early church father and say, see, they were all Baptists, you know, or, you know, everybody does that. They'll take a quote from an early church father and say, see, they were all Orthodox. They were all Roman Catholic. But it's like, you know, I don't think you can point to a specific denomination and say all the early church fathers were just like that. Um, it's, it's too, there was, there was a, there was differences in beliefs and, you know, um, you know, specifics of theology grew, you know, it became more specific over time. So for them to, you know, to kind of say, well, they taught just as we do, but it, it changed over time is, is, yeah, it's just not correct. And, um, and I wanted to bring out to, I wanted to bring up the part where it says that uh, theosis kind of died out over the Roman period. I think it said, uh, I didn't give it a specific time, but, but if I wanted to quote from, and, and they admitted that Eastern Orthodoxy still teaches theosis, you know, that's a major part of their theology even today. But I wanted to actually bring up two. Um, that's okay, unless you wanted you had something else to say about that quote. Okay, I wanted to bring up uh, Aquinas because he's a 13th century, I think, theologian. He was like one of the doctors of the of the uh, Roman Catholic Church, so he's like one of the main theologians of their you know, of their church. Uh, let me see where did that quote go? I have a Summa Theologiae, so it's uh, first part of the second part of this of the Summa Theologiae. And it's question 112, the cause of grace. And so uh, kind of what, what it's kind of a question and answer Thomas Aquinas does in the Summa. So it's kind of like he, he brings up objections and he responds to them. And so objection one of this article one is, is talking about whether God alone is the cause of grace. Objection one, he writes, it would seem that God alone is not the cause of grace. For it is written in John 1.17, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, by the name of Jesus Christ is understood not merely the divine nature, assuming, but the created nature, talking about the human nature, assume. 
therefore a creature may be the cause of grace. So he's, he's kind of like, there's, he's bringing up this objection that only the divine is the cause of grace, and not just, the, you know, and not the human nature because Jesus is both divine and human. So why can't the human nature also be the cause of grace? So uh, he responds, uh, he says, I answer that nothing can act beyond its species since the cause must always be more powerful than its effect. Now the gift of grace surpasses every capability of created nature, since it is nothing short of a partaking of the divine nature, which exceeds every other nature. And thus it is impossible that any creature should cause grace for it is as necessary that God alone should deify bestowing a partaking of the divine nature by a participative likeness, as it is impossible that anything save fire should enkindle. That's the end of that quote. So he's, he's saying a lot of stuff here. He's basically saying that the creature can't give grace because the creature is the effect. You know, God is the cause. So just as a fire causes something to start on fire and not the opposite, you know, you can't, you can't have grace from the creature because the creature is the effect. And so God is the only source of the cause uh, of, of grace. And he says, for it is as necessary that God alone should deify bestowing a partaking of the divine nature by a participative likeness as it is impossible that anything save fire should kindle. So even here, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas is saying that God does deify and makes us partakers of the divine nature. So, so this idea that theosis was completely, you know, it was completely removed, you know, from the Western church after the Roman period is just not true because that's well into the medieval period that he's talking about this. And, um, and it's, it's, it's the, I think the language changed a little bit in the West. It wasn't, really talking about becoming like God or becoming gods. It's more about uh, adoption. You know, it's, it's more speaking about adoption and becoming partakers of the divine nature, but it's essentially talking about the same thing. And then in the reformation period, it's a lot of it is adoption and sanctification, but it's this idea that, yeah, we're partaking of the divine nature. You know, God is transforming us, becoming, making us like Christ. And so it's not that it was lost, you know, I, it's just that the language to explain the doctrine is, is kind of changed over time. And a lot of Latter-day Saints quickly jump on me when I say that. And they say, well, see, they changed what the early church taught. If the language changed, that means the doctrine changed. And it's like, well, no, I don't think so. I mean, look at scientists, you know, like scientists, a lot of times they have to develop new terms to be more specific, to explain something that's already well understood, you know, to, to not that they don't understand how the thing might work exactly, although that does change over time, but a lot of times they use different terms to explain the same thing. And so that's what theologians are doing. They're not, they're not coming with something brand new like, or changing what's taught in its essence. They're, they're just trying to add more specificity and more, more clarity to what was already kind of taught. And so when they talk about grace and means of grace, and uh, these are essentially talking about the same thing is that God, you know, God changes us and transforms us to become children of God. Yeah. Yeah. Really good point. I liked what you said about, uh, the point you made about Aquinas and and that 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 the teaching of of theosis properly understood uh, continued even in the Western Church. Um, one of the things that this section of the the essay does is it kind of introduces this um, kind of uh, approach and 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 rhetoric that Latter Day Saints have used for a long time now, which is um, you know to accuse uh, the early church of falling into apostasy by way of adopting Greek philosophy. And um, this section makes that charge pretty explicitly. Um, so one thing that I would uh, caution Latter-day Saint thinkers and scholars there on, uh, 
you know, as if I have some authority to caution them. I'm, I'm just noting something that I've noticed as I as I left the Latter Day Saint faith and started studying uh, for myself. I, I did recognize before I left this kind of. Uh, rhetorical device that Latter-day Saints use. Uh, James E. Talmadge uses it in uh, the Great Apost- his book, The Great Apostasy, um, it, which is all about this idea that uh, Greek philosophy tainted uh, the Christian church. Um, so one of the things that I would that I would, would caution, though, is we, we quoted pretty extensively earlier, or talked pretty extensively earlier about Origen, um, and we talked about his philosophical education, Yes, he's considered uh, one of the most important uh, Christian writers, especially of the early period, um, the early first few centuries. Um, But there are ideas of his uh, which largely come from his interaction with Greek philosophy and his attempt to systematize and synthesize uh, his two types of learning, right, from the scripture and from philosophy, um, that his teachings on intelligences and and the preexistence of souls come. Um, And, you know, he also goes on to talk about uh, the earth and the moon and the stars and the sun all also having uh, spirits like humans do. So, um, you know, that's, that's out of Greek philosophy as well. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to point out here is that that charge that, Oh, Christian theology fell or Christian, uh, thinkers and, and teachers fell into apostasy as a result of imbibing uh, from the bottle of, of Greek philosophy, that's a sword that cuts both ways because some of the, the really integral fundamental aspects of what this essay is saying about human nature come from that integration of Greek philosophy. Um, and in, in one of the paragraphs, it's footnote 18 for those listeners who want to look it up in, in the essay, they cite, uh, the, 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 the line says, the earliest Jewish and Christian commentaries on the creation assumed that God had organized the world out of pre-existing materials, emphasizing the goodness of God and shaping such a life-sustaining order. Footnote 18. When you look up footnote 18, they cite to the second century church father, Justin Martyr, who said, quote, we have been taught that he in the beginning, of, he in the beginning did of his goodness for man's sake, create all things out of unformed matter. Uh, that's in Justin's first apology, uh, cited in Roberts and Donaldson, Antonicene Fathers, uh, one sixty-five. So um, I'll make the point again. Justin Martyr was a trained Greek philosopher. Much of the things that he discusses and writes about are coming out of that understanding that he has from Greek philosophy. So it's it's a double-edged sword to try to say Greek philosophy got its clutches into Christian theology and made it go awry, uh, which is the normal Latter-day Saint claim. Because like I said before, a lot of the things that Latter-day Saints believe come from that interaction with Greek philosophy, come from the Gnostics, the Manichaeans. Um, And so, you know, are there church fathers who to more of an extent than others imbibed at the bottle of Greek philosophy? Absolutely there are. They were trained in it. That was their education. So they thought like Greek philosophers. Are there early church fathers who had backgrounds in uh, groups that were considered heretical, like the Manichaeans uh, with Augustine, for example? And some of that thought that from earlier earlier in their lives seeps into their thinking later as Christians. Yes, that happens. 
Does it mean that the church fell away completely into apostasy? No, it does not. Does it make it incumbent on us if we're going to cite church fathers to support our beliefs, as Matthew was saying earlier, to not rip things out of context and try to understand a person's whole theology? Yes, it makes it incumbent upon us to do so. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and it's it seems like from what from what I understand is like a lot of the early church fathers they didn't see Greek philosophy as like oh here's this brand new thing I can inject into Christianity and change it. It's more like I have Christianity here, this this tradition, this faith that's passed down by the you know by our forefathers. How can I use the tools that I've learned as a philosopher to defend the faith? You know, like a lot most of the early church writings were defending the faith against Gnostics or against you know, against pagans, against, you know, other religious groups and, and the heretics, you know, the Arius and Nestorius and, and all these uh, other people that came along. So they didn't see, it, it wasn't seen as something that was changing the faith. And I think if they were, people would have really put a, little, a lot of pushback on them if they were changing it so drastically that it wasn't even the same Christianity anymore. It was more like they're using uh, philosophical arguments to support what they believed. And I see that a lot in Aquinas too. It's like, I read a lot of, you know, I've, I've been starting to read his Summa Theologiae, uh, the very first part, because it talks about God and the divine simplicity of God. And it's not, and it's like, yeah, someone reading that will say, well, that's garbage. You know, you can't find that in the Bible, but, but you have to understand that he's, he's taking like what the Bible teaches already and saying, okay, here's, here's my philosophical arguments that, that even, you know, that support and buttress what scripture teaches and, and to explain why it makes sense. And I think that's valid. You know, as long as you start off with what does the Bible teach and what, you know, and then you can say, okay, well, here's why it makes sense. You know, at least, you know, to, to me, that seems like it's a, it's an okay way to do it. But the way, the way you go wrong is you say, okay, I'm just going to reject the Bible and I'm going to start off with my own ideas and I'm going to come up with my own conclusions based on philosophy as to what God is. That's where you, that's where it's really dangerous. And we also have to understand that philosophy is not infallible. You know, only God's, you know, God's revelation is infallible. So if, if used in its proper place, it's can be useful, but yeah, that's not what the early fathers are doing. They weren't inventing a new religion. Yeah, absolutely. Really good. Really good thoughts there. Um, I think it's also important to contextualize uh, the lives of these early church fathers. Uh, and I'll do that quickly by by way of re- referring back to Origen. Um, as we mentioned, he was a very well-trained Greek philosopher uh, who also put a very high emphasis on the revelation of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And But he was... Uh, during the Decian um, persecution of the church, he was tortured horribly uh, and they didn't kill him. They would torture him, but they wanted to keep him alive because they thought here is this great defender of the Christian faith. And by they, I mean the Romans, the Roman authorities, here's this great defender of the Christian faith. He's well-respected among them and he's well-respected among our philosophers because of his training. If we can get him to recant the faith through torture, it will be a big win for us. Now, why were they trying to achieve a win by torturing Origen? Because Christianity was viewed as a disruptor to the the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, right? And so uh, they, throughout uh, the history of the the Roman empire in those early centuries of, of the church as it's kind of gaining ground, there were various horrible persecutions uh, by the Roman authorities uh, of Christians. And then 
you know, you would have some good emperors who wouldn't persecute Christians. And then you would have another emperor who would decide to persecute Christians. And, and so you, you contextualize origins life, right? Part of the arguments that uh, Justin Martyr, especially and later origin are making with regards to Greek philosophy is that they're trying to argue that actually uh, what we have in the deposit of the faith in the Old Testament is the revelation of the one true God, and that everything that Plato and others of Greek philosophy understood actually came from Moses first. Those are the arguments that they're trying to make. And they're making that argument uh, to try to say, hey, we're, we're not really trying to disrupt the Pax Romana. Right. We want to coexist here with you and we want you to understand what we're trying to say here. Um, so they're 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 what I mean by contextualize is understand that they're that they're under the sword, one, and and also they're they're trying to make peace with those who are critiquing them, those who are putting them to the sword. So um it's important to contextualize all of that early church history. Uh, when you're when you're talking about and, and trying to understand what the early church fathers are saying, who they're interacting with in their in their dialogues and the things that they're writing and why, all of that is important. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness. Outer brightness. Outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here. Except when Michael's hangry, that is. Hangry, that is. Hangry, that is. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be. And the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us and we hope you'll stick around. All right. So that brings us to the next section, unless you've got some more comments on that section, Matthew. All right. So the next section is uh, how were ideas about deification introduced to Latter-day Saints? Uh, the earliest Latter-day Saints came from a society dominated by English-speaking Protestants, most of whom accepted both ex nihilo creation and the Westminster Confession's definition of God as being as a being, quote, without body parts or passions, end quote. They likely knew little or nothing about the diversity of Christian beliefs in the first centuries after Jesus Christ's ministry or about early Christian writings on deification. But revelations received by Joseph Smith diverged from the prevailing ideas of the time and taught doctrine that, for some, reopened debates on the nature of God, creation, and humankind. Early revelations to Joseph Smith taught that humans are created in the image of God and that God cares intimately for his children. In the Book of Mormon, a prophet saw the finger of the Lord and was astonished to learn that human physical forms were truly made in the image of God. In another early revelation, Enoch who, quote, walked with God, end quote, in the Bible, witnessed God weeping over his creations. When Enoch asked, how is it that thou canst weep? He learned that God's compassion towards human suffering is integral to his love. Joseph Smith also learned that God desires that his children receive the same kind of exalted existence of which he partakes. 
As God declared, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. In 1832, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon experienced a vision of the afterlife. In the vision, they learned that the just and unjust alike would receive immortality through a universal resurrection, but only those who overcome by faith and are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise would receive the fullness of God's glory and be God's even the sons of God. Another revelation soon confirmed that the saints shall be filled with his glory and receive their inheritance and be made equal with him. Latter-day Saints use the term exaltation to describe the glorious reward of receiving one's full inheritance as a child of Heavenly Father, which is available through the atonement of Christ by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. This striking view of each human's potential future was accompanied by revealed teachings on humanity's past. As Joseph Smith continued to receive revelations, he learned that the light or intelligence at the core of each human soul was not created or made, neither indeed can be. God the Father of each human spirit, God is the Father of each human spirit, I'm sorry, and because only spirit and element inseparably connected receive a fullness of joy, he presented a plan for humans to receive physical bodies and progress through their mortal experience toward a fullness of joy. Earthly birth, then, is not the beginning of an individual's life. Man was also in the beginning with God. Likewise, Joseph Smith taught that the material world has eternal roots fully repudiating the concept of creation ex nihilo. Earth, water, etc., all these had their existence in an elementary state from eternity, said Smith in an 1839 sermon. God organized the universe out of existing elements. Joseph Smith continued to receive revelation on the themes of divine nature and exaltation during the last two years of his life. In a revelation recorded in July of 1843 that linked exaltation with eternal marriage, the Lord declared that those who keep covenants, including the covenant of eternal marriage, will inherit will inherit all the heights and depths. Then, says the revelation, shall they be gods because they have no end. They will receive a continuation of the seeds forever and ever. The following April, feeling he was never, quote, never in a nearer relationship to God than at the present time, end quote, Joseph Smith spoke about the nature of God and the future of humankind to the saints who had gathered for a general church conference. He used the occasion in part to reflect upon the death of a church member named King Follett, who had died unexpectedly a month earlier. When he rose to speak, the wind was blowing, so Joseph asked his listeners to give him their profound attention and to pray that the Lord may strengthen my lungs and stay the winds until his, until my message has been delivered. What kind of a being is God? He asked. Human beings needed to know, he argued, because, quote, if men do not comprehend the character of God, they do not comprehend themselves, end quote. In that phrase, the prophet collapsed the gulf that centuries of confusion had created between God and humanity. Human nature was at its core divine. God was at God was as one of us, and all the spirits that God ever sent into the world were likewise susceptible of enlargement, according to Joseph Smith. He preached that long before the world was formed, God found himself in the midst of these beings and saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest could have a privilege to advance like himself and be exalted with him. Joseph told the assembled saints, you have got to learn how to be a God yourself. In order to do that, the saints needed to learn godliness or to be more like God. The process would, would be ongoing and would require patience, faith, continuing repentance, and obedience to the commandments of the gospel and reliance on Christ. Like ascending a ladder, individuals needed to learn the first principles of the gospel and continue beyond the limits of mortal knowledge until they could learn the last principles of the gospel when the time came. Joseph Smith said, quote, it is not all to be comprehended in this world. It will take a long time after the grave to understand the whole, end quote. 
That was the last time the prophet spoke in general conference. Three months later, a mob stormed Carthage jail and martyred him and his brother Hiram. Matthew, thoughts on this section? Mm, I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, just it's, it's a long article. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So I want to start by even just the first sentence. Uh, well, overall, I'll give my overall thoughts. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty accurate to what I remember being taught about, you know, in terms of the King Fall discourse and uh, in terms of Enoch. Um, and um, the finger of God being made known to the brother of Jared, right? In the Book of Mormon. So yeah, that, that's that, that's consistent with what I remember being taught as Latter-day Saint. Um, I want to go back to the beginning, like I said, uh, the first sentence. So it's, it's correct when it says it here. Um, the earliest Latter-day Saints came from a society dominated by English-speaking Protestants, most of whom accepted both ex-Neolo creation and the Westminster Confession's definition of God as a being without body, parts, or passions. So they're... There's a long patristic uh, tradition, and there's a lot, a lot of understanding in the Western Christianity, not just in the Reformation, but you know, even in the medieval Catholic uh, tradition about this idea that God is without body parts or passions. And but as a Latter Day Saint, we never talked about or studied what that actually means. We kind of just read that and thought it means like, oh, God's just like nothing, you know, like he doesn't have a body, he doesn't have parts, he doesn't have passions, so he's like he's like nothing. But there's really there's there's a reason why they said that they that God is without body parts or passions. Um, he's without body, you know, he's a God of spirit. And so he's unlimited in, in space, you know, like humans we're limited. So our spirit is limited inside our body, but God and spirit is, you know, without bounds. So God doesn't have any kind of body. He doesn't have a head. He doesn't have legs, whatever. Uh, I think that's pretty easy to understand. The parts or passions part is really difficult. Father Day Saints to understand. They just don't know what that means. They, they, I kind of understood it to mean that parts is just the same thing as body. You know, like maybe body was the whole and parts are the parts of the body, like a hand and a foot. But parts, saying God is not parts is to say that God is completely simple. And it means that whatever is in God is God. And that's something that's that I've been studying recently that I, that I really find fascinating. So when we talk about God, we can, we can, um, we can attribute attributes or adjectives to God, like God is merciful or, you know, like God, God, he acts mercifully or God loves or you know, things like that. But not only that, but God is mercy. He is love. He is justice. And so when we say this about God, he actually is these things. Um, but at the same time, God is not a combination of a bunch of different things. You know, it's not like you take a giant bucket and you throw in justice, you throw in mercy, you throw in love, you throw in compassion, you throw in perfection and all that stuff. And then you get God. That's, you know, the, the, the church never thought that's what it means. You it's know, partialism, God, Patrick. That's, <laughs> yeah, it's partialism. Exactly. So, and, and I use this argument in one of the LDS discussion groups. I said, can you get to an infinite God by adding finite parts? You know, could you keep adding finite parts and then eventually become infinite? And someone, and a lot of people try to use mathematics and stuff like that. And they said, well, you can have an infinite series. And I'm like, well, yeah, exactly. That has to be without end, but you can never really reach that end. You know, like when you end an infinite series at any particular point, it's just a really big number. It's not infinite. You know, infinite has to be either infinite is infinite. You know, Um, you can't add enough finites to actually arrive at a point where it's infinite, because if you try to chop off that infinite series at any point, it's not infinite. It has to keep going, but that's not possible. So when they saw, when they were understanding who God is, they're saying, well, God is, he's always been infinite. You know, you're either infinite or you're not. You can't, you can't make something finite into infinite. And so when they say God is without parts, they're saying God is simple and he's, he's not made of parts like a car, you know, like if you're trying to make a car, like a, like a Jeep, 
you have to take the tires, you have to take the axles, you have to take the transmission and the engine block and the radiator and all these parts. And you construct them and form them and put them together and then you get a car. So the sum is greater than its parts. And without those parts, the car is not a car. Well, God's not the same way. You know, God is not made up of parts that when you fit them all together, you get God, whether physically or metaphorically or metaphysically, like God's attributes. God is just God. He's just simply God. And it's hard for us to understand, but but I think it's I think it's valid. And it's, a, it's there's a long tradition and understanding of that in the Western church. And when we say God is without passions, it doesn't mean God doesn't have any emotions. God certainly does have emotions. And we see, you know, throughout the Old and New Testaments that God demonstrates these emotions to man. But at the same time, a passion is something that that is a result of an external stimulus is kind of how I've heard it explained to me is that, you know, when we see somebody who's in pain, our uh, we our emotions are changed and affected by that. And we have an external response to that. Or if something is disgusting or evil, we have a change in our in our affections and how we respond to that. But God being someone who doesn't change and who knows all things past, present, future, who's seen everything, he, he doesn't change his emotions from moment to moment, you know, and he doesn't, he's not a capricious God. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't flip flop a lot. So he always hates evil. He always loves good. Um, so those are just two examples of how God has an eternal hatred of sin and an eternal love for his people and for, you know, for God's son. And so that's, that's why Christians say without body parts or passions. And I think if, if Latter-day Saints were to really study these things out, apart from the body part, they might, they might be more amenable to understanding why Christians say that God is without body parts or passions. Cause I didn't, I had no idea what, uh, what that meant as Latter-day Saints. But as the more I studied it, I'm like, okay, yeah, it actually kind of makes sense. You can tie it to scripture. Um, and so just to summarily dismiss, you know, hundreds of years of theologians and, and discussing this and reading scripture and, and understanding it. And to just say, well, it makes no sense, whatever, you know, and that's kind of the, the attitude I get from a lot of Latter-day Saints. That's the attitude I had as a Latter-day Saint. Like, oh, that's stupid. Why would anybody believe that? It's it's very dismissive and kind of disrespectful. So I want to talk a lot about that because it quotes the Westminster Confession. And uh, and uh, the, the confession I subscribe to is the grand the grandson of the Westminster Confession. So I feel like I had to defend it a little bit. <laughs> so that's why I want to talk a lot about that. Yeah, really good. I'm glad you brought that up. I, uh, you know, sitting in, in the MTC, uh, what, 25 years ago now, um, 24, 25 years ago now, and reading through Talmadge's book, The Great Apostasy, uh, pretty sure he talks about, uh, I'm pretty sure that's the one where he's talking about uh, this whole body parts and passions uh, piece from the, from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I, you know, I talked earlier about theocentric theology and anthropocentric theology and how Latter-day Saints come to a, a way of thinking about theology that is anthropocentric, that is human-centered. They come by it naturally because of, of, of what uh, LDS theology is. Um, and uh, I remember reading that, at, at, I think, as you, you said as well, and being like body, body parts, my arms, my God is without arms, legs, you know, and, and passions, human passions. Right. So like, you know, I, I brought my anthropocentric theology to try even trying to understand that passage from the Westminster confession of faith and what it's saying about God. Right. And I had a completely wrong view as you just described of what that's actually, what the, what the Christian theologians who wrote that and use that are actually saying about the nature of God. So, um, I, I really resonate with, with, uh, your, um, 
desire for Latter-day Saints to uh, engage Christian theology and Christian understandings of theology in ways that are charitable, not in ways that are polemical, which which they kind of come to naturally as well. Um, really try to really try to understand what it is your uh, those who you, who you're dialoguing with mean when they say things. Um, one of the, the one thing I kind of wanted to hone in on in this section. Uh, well, there's a few, but um, the first one is uh, there's this line that says uh, it's referring to Doctrine and Covenants uh, section 132, and it quotes from it says they shall be shall they then shall they be gods because they have no end, uh, and that they will receive a continuation of the seeds forever and ever. Uh, what does that mean? continuation of the seeds. Matthew, what was your understanding as a Latter-day Saint that that meant? Yeah, I thought that meant that just as we are God's spiritual children and he created us, you know, we, when we become gods, um, it says, then shall they be gods because they have no end. So when we become gods, we will continue seed just like God created us. And how all the details of how that works, like, you know, if you would also need to create a savior to save your children, you know, and then the process continues on and on and on. You know, some people, a lot of people go to that conclusion, but it's not explicit. But I think that's kind of the natural, logical, you know, follow up to that. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I I did a search in the gospel, the LDS Gospel Library app that I have on my phone to try to see what uh, church leaders, LDS church leaders have taught about what that means. Um, there wasn't a whole lot. There were about four general conference addresses. Um, all of which uh, were in relation to uh, human procreative powers being kind of analogous to divine procreative powers. Um, and that, and so that then the idea here is that only those who are exalted uh, in LDS theology to godhood um, have that continuation of being able to have procreative powers mm-hmm. in the hereafter. Um, so, uh, I think that when you start talking about that topic, uh, Latter-day Saints can get a little squeamish, maybe. Um, I'm not sure why it is part of their theology. Um, and it's something that they actually, uh, according to this essay, it's something that actually should ennoble them, according to the essay, uh, about what their potential is. But they become a little squeamish about it. Um, and we'll we'll touch on that a little bit later in the in the essay. But I wanted to uh, note that this citation to Doctrine and Covenants one thirty two verses nineteen to twenty. Um, I wanted to full quote the full verse twenty, which says, uh, "Then shall they be gods." Uh, and this is talking about um, a couple, uh, a man who marries a wife uh, under the new and everlasting covenant, and it's sealed upon them by the Holy spirit of promise. And it's the marriage is performed by someone who has priesthood authority. Uh, those are the verses kind of leading up to it. Um, that then they shall be gods because they shall have no end. Therefore shall they be from everlasting to everlasting because they continue. Then shall they be above all because all things are subject unto them. Then shall they be gods because they have all power and the angels are subject to unto them. So a couple of things. First of all, what you were talking about, Matthew, with uh, you can't just add infinite uh, attributes to something that is finite and end up with an infinite. But that is what this passage seems to want to do. Um, you know, they're going to be everlasting to everlasting because they continue. <laughs> um, 
But I wanted to ask the question. Um, it says they'll be gods because the angels are subject to them. Who who are these angels that are going to be subject to um, Latter Day Saints who are exalted? Yeah, I uh, I kind of had this idea that it was people who received celestial glory but didn't receive exaltation. That's kind of how I thought of it. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right on the nose. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know if it's uh, if that's exactly explicitly said, but. I think it's heavily implied, especially from DNC 76. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm going to, I think it is uh, explicitly stated uh, at least um, by the uh, prophet Joseph Smith as quoted in uh, the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. Um, He said, God's have an ascendancy over the angels who are ministering servants in the resurrection some are raised to be angels, other are raised, others are raised to become gods. Um, these things are revealed in the most holy places in a temple prepared for that purpose. Many of the sects cry out, quote, Oh, I have the testimony of Jesus, I have the spirit of God, but away with Joe Smith. He says he is a prophet, but there are no there to be no prophets or revelations in the last days, end quote. Stop, sir. The revelator says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So by your own mouth you are condemned, but to the text. Why gather the people together in this place for the same purpose that Jesus wanted to gather the Jews to receive the ordinances, the blessings and the glories that God has in store for his saints. I will now ask this assembly and all the saints, if you will now build this house and receive the ordinances and blessings, which God has in store for you, or will you not build unto the Lord this this house and let him pass by and bestow these blessings upon another people. So uh, Joseph Smith taught pretty explicitly that, yeah, that, that some people, uh, will be raised to be angels to serve uh, those who are exalted as gods. Yeah, and there's I knew someone, I won't say who, but who's LDS, who's really urging their spouse to take them to the temple because he said, I don't want to go to the social kingdom and just be an angel. You know, I I, I want to get to the highest level. And I there was, I don't remember who it was, but it was like an, ad, like an advertisement, I guess you could say, or I don't know what you would say, but like kind of like a, uh, a PR kind of thing from the LDS church where someone says, you know, I want the best thing available to me. And, I, and the LDS missionaries talked to me and they said, you know, and they offered me that I can become like God. And that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted to become like him. So there's this kind of, there's this appeal to a lot of Latter-day Saints to become, you know, to, to become just exactly like God is. And I forgot why I made that point, but there's something you said that reminded me of that. Yeah. It was the, the whole, uh, that there would be some angels who would oh, yeah. be resurrected angel people who would be resurrected angels rather than gods. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the other, the other um, statement from this section of the essay I wanted to comment on says like ascending a ladder, individuals need to learn the first principles of the gospel and continue beyond the limits of mortal knowledge until they could learn the last principles of the gospel. When the time came, it is not to not all to be comprehended in this world. Joseph said it will take a long time after the grave to understand the whole. So a couple of comments here earlier in the section, uh, they had uh, quoted Joseph Smith as saying, if men do not comprehend the nature of God, they do not comprehend themselves. Um, And then they make the claim in that phrase, the prophet collapsed the gulf that centuries of confusion had created between God and humanity. Um, So they're saying that Joseph Smith collapsed the creator creature distinction that we talked about earlier on. Mm -hmm. Um, But then they go on to say that it's like ascending a ladder and it's going to take forever in the eternities to really get there. Um, One, I want to refer our listeners back to um, 
if you haven't listened to it, and if you have, go back and listen to it again. Uh, our episode, Becoming Perfect, which is a response to Book of Mormon Central. Uh, I think that's a really critical uh, episode to go listen to when thinking about this topic. Um, but the statement that it's going to take a really long time after the grave to understand the whole kind of, uh, it demonstrates that the gulf actually exists, right? <laughs> because we recognize and, and Joseph Smith's listeners recognized, and Joseph Smith realized that his listeners recognized that, man, there's this real difference between me and God. How you're saying I can become God. And he's like, well, it'll take a while, people. It's going to take a good long time, even after the grave, for that to happen. Um, so it just, it's kind of self-defeating the whole argument of, oh, the, the, the distinction has collapsed. Mm. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, uh, there's another point that you said that I thought was interesting. Uh, lost it. Um, yeah. And like, so when you look in church history too, you know, you kind of see a similar, you see some, you see interesting trends that happen, you know, like baptism early on in the church was related to remission of sins. So you had people that would see baptism as like, kind of like a get into heaven free card. Like they would wait as long as possible to get baptized because they're like, Hey, if I get baptized right on my deathbed, you know, I'll get all my sins forgiven and then I'll get into heaven. Right. So there's a lot of people that did that. And, um, and so like when you see, you know, when you see in Catholic theology in the, you know, early medieval Catholic theology, they really focused a lot on penance and, you know, like, you know, works really started to grow in terms of its importance. And so then you have this idea of purgatory that starts to develop because yeah, they saw a similar gap. They're like, well, God's perfect. And if I'm going to become like Christ, that's, you know, how, how is that going to happen? And so um, they developed this idea of purgatory, that there would be a time, you know, like a, where, where you'd be purging, you know, pur- purgation of your sins. So to, you could become perfect and actually endure God's presence. And it would be kind of like an, a burning fire. They point it to passages like First Corinthians 3. And, you know, that, and then, then you had this practice of like, well, you don't want your ancestors to survive centuries and millennia in purgatory, right? So if you say so many prayers to Mary, or if you light so many candles or do so many good works, that'll release them from purgatory for so many years. And, um, and then by the time of the reformation, there were these, you know, there was a gross abuse of, uh, of indulgences that grew that even the Catholic church recognized was uh, an abuse, um, where you could pay money and then you could get somebody out of purgatory for so many millennia or whatever. And so that was used to fund the building of St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. And that really upset a lot of people. And that kind of was one of the big, you know, uh, kind of the spark that started the reformation. So you see, you see like a lot of trends, you know, like where an idea kind of grows over time and then there's a response to it. So like you said, you know, um, Joseph Smith and, and those who followed him saw this, this gap between us and God. So how do, how do we get from us to God? Is it through grace? You know, like, can God just change us miraculously? Like, can he just glorify us by his power? Well, no, we have to obey these laws and ordinances and gradually go up the ladder you know, by our own efforts and repentance and eternities. And eventually we'll get there. You know, that's, that's the one like drop of hope is like, well, as long as you're doing your best and you try, eventually you'll get there, but you really have no guarantee of that. You know, that you're, that what you're doing now even is good enough so that when you get to the other side, you can continue going. Cause maybe you didn't do good enough here. And then when you get to the other side you're like, Oh, well, sorry. You know, like you're, you're stuck in the terrestrial kingdom, I guess, you know, I don't know. That's just a lot of thoughts I had on that part. Yeah, that's good. All right, let's go on to uh, the next section. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. 
we'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podbeam, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, flyerflies. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God the Word made flesh the risen Son Heaven and Earth will pass away but the Word of God church would remain upon this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against us cause you have